Hey, everybody. How's it going? Good. Awesome. I would love to have you take out a Bible and turn with me to the book of Daniel. Uh, Daniel chapter 7. We have been uh, exploring this, this incredible, incredible book uh, from the Old Testament, about 2,500 years old, uh, for the last seven weeks. And this morning is our last teaching on uh, the book of Daniel for this series. So we're in Daniel 7. And uh, it's fairly self-explanatory. So I'm just going to go ahead and jump right in by reading the text. And then we'll, we'll make a couple observations. But I think, I think it'll be pretty clear what this text is talking about. Sound all right? Everybody good? So I highly recommend following along. If you have a Bible, great. If you need a Bible, there's a red one. You know the drill if you're here. Or, or you can... Uh, I don't know why I'm pointing to the screen because the words are not going to be on the screen. But there's a QR code in the bulletin. You can scan that and follow it along. Follow along that way. Daniel chapter 7 verse 1. Now, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions passed through his mind while he was lying in bed. Anybody dream last night? Anybody share the dreams from last night? Any wild dreams last night? Like, it's kind of like, Bizarre, scary dreams. Okay, so we can, we can swap notes. We'll see how your dream compares to this. So Daniel wrote down the substance in his dream, of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were four winds of heaven churning up the great sea, and four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion. It had wings of an eagle. That's pretty sweet. Lion with the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, not so good, and it was lifted up from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being and had the mind of a human that was given to it. And there before me was a second beast which looked like a bear. And it it was raised on one of its sides and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that, I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. Uh, And on its back, it had four wings like those of a bird. And this beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. And after that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth, and it crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts because it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, as you would think about the horns, right? As I was thinking about the horns, um... Another, a little one, which came up from among them. First, three horns were uprooted before it, but this horn had eyes of a human being and mouth that spoke boastfully. Thanks for being here today, guys. Uh, I hope you have a good week. That's, that'll do it, right? That's pretty self-explanatory. I was talking to, talking to Gary, a worship leader. I'm like, hey, so just like plan it for this morning. Sing the song about the little horn with the human eyes and the mouth that speaks boastfully. Like, just sing that one, and I think we'll pretty much... Sum it up, right? What is going on? Like, we didn't plan it this way, but this is like the perfect sermon for like Halloween week, right? Of like, what is that? These are some costume ideas, right? This is crazy stuff. Um, And it's like, so let's just pause here for a second because some of us are just like, what in the world is happening right now? Um, So, some of us may very well be skeptical to the Christian faith. Like, some of us might be here this morning exploring, what do these Christians talk about when they gather for worship on Sundays? 
and here we are, and you say, that's the problem with the Christian faith, right? I mean, I've, I'm very, I have friends who I could imba- imagine being here with us, and as I imagine them sitting, they're like, yeah, yeah, okay, so you're talking about a dream from this dude from 2,500 years ago. Like, that's, that's the problem with the Christian faith. Why don't you talk about things that are relevant for today? So maybe some of you may be in that boat, and I'm glad you're here. Um, some of us maybe grew up in church context, like we've, we've, we've been in church context where this kind of stuff is all we ever talked about. Where like you had leaders, pastors who went into really intricate details about all of these kind of mysteries in the Bible and, and they ascribed really like specific um, meaning to all of these beasts and all of these kinds of writings in the Bible. And it filled you with terror because most of the time what happened in these kinds of writings is people looked ahead to the, what they call the end times, right? And these beasts like were given specific meaning and it was all set in this context of someday Christ is going to return and bring sort of judgment on the world. And so that's, when you hear a text like this, that's immediately where your head goes. So I'm guessing some of us are, and, and maybe if you're in that boat, you're, you're like, you know what, I've read the charts, I've, like, I've seen the presentations, and I'm done with that whole thing. I'm, I'm, I'm jaded because of it. Um, so I don't know where you, how you experience a text like this when we read just these first couple of verses of Daniel chapter 7. But what if I told you that the, for the most important human being who has ever lived... There, a good case could be made that this chapter, Daniel 7, was the most important chapter in their lives. Now again, everyone agrees that Jesus of Nazareth is the most important human being who has ever lived. Um, it's, it's fairly unarguable that anybody has had more impact on human history than this man. He's changed the course of human history. And so if you're here skeptical of Christianity and just kind of exploring, like to say, Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, he drew from this one chapter, Daniel chapter 7, a, a case could be made more than any other chapter in the Old Testament. Is that crazy? And so for us, who are Christians, who are disciples of Jesus, who have, who have said Jesus is the one that we follow, this chapter is going to be really important for us to say, why was it so meaningful to Jesus? Why did he draw from it? And what does it mean for us today as we look to follow Jesus today in our day um, that we, where we live here and now? And so uh, I think there's an incredible fresh word from God for us through this text. But we're going to explore some fairly deep stuff. We're going, to, we're going to move at a pretty quick pace through some pretty heavy stuff. Buckle up. Are you with me? Are you ready? Are you ready for this? Uh, I, think, I think God wants to say something very, very um, life-giving and freeing to us through this text. But, uh, but, but we're going to move, so, so stick with me. So, Daniel chapter 7. Uh, Daniel is having a dream. And in this dream, it begins with like this darkness, it's at night, and the, the, he gets a picture of the ocean, the sea. And the sea is like being churned up by the winds of heaven. Um, the sea is terrifying. Like, I live in Kansas, and I am just fine living in Kansas, nowhere close to the sea. I get it. Like, you know, the, the, you know, the, the visions of like looking out over the ocean, and it's beautiful and majestic, and it is freaky. 
Um, my parents lived in Florida, right? And they lived on the Gulf side of Florida. So I was fine, like getting into the water and, you know, you could kind of get up to waist deep and stuff. But every once in a while, you'd see like these like, you know, dolphins and things like, and you realize like it's a dolphin, it's flipper, it's not going to hurt you. I, I can get all that stuff. But if there are dolphins there, there are creatures that will eat me. And, and so I like to stay out of the ocean um, in that way. I, I heard this story on NPR a couple of months ago that said that, um, check this out. This is a bit of a diversion, but it's, I think it'll make the point. So the ocean, right, is this, the ocean floor, like what's down there at the bottom of our ocean floor is like 99% unexplored. We have no clue what's down there. Megalodon, who knows, right? Maybe you've seen the movie. My kids want to see the movie. Like, we, we don't have any idea what's down there. That's freaky. This isn't Mars or like some other planet. This is our own planet on the ocean floor. We don't know what's down there. And if you go below uh, 3,000 meters in the ocean, your chance of in- encountering a creature no one else has ever laid eyes on is over 50%. That's crazy. Like, we don't know what's down there. The ocean is freaky. Right? So let's just stay in Kansas, far away from the ocean. Um, So Daniel's vision is of the ocean and these winds churning up the sea. Now, in the Old Testament, anytime you read about the sea or the waters, think chaos. Think evil. Think forces. Powerful forces of evil live in the sea. This is how the Old Testament people, the Hebrew people, understood that, the sea. So uh, if you're going to open your Bibles to the very first page, just turn with me to Genesis chapter 1, right? First couple of verses of Scripture. I'll give you a picture of this. So the sea equals chaos, terrifying, mysterious forces at work in the world. Um, Genesis chapter 1, uh, verse 1, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. And darkness was over the surface of the deep. What is the deep? The waters, right? And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So before God creates, in in the beginning, in Genesis 1, before God creates, there is this sort of chaos, this mess, this watery, mysterious, evil place. And so... um, in, in the Bibles, you know, you have the words formless and void here in Genesis 1-3. Formless and void in Hebrew is the word tohu bohu. Everybody wants to say that, right? Tohu bohu. And, and sometimes this is translated wild and waste. Wild and waste. Um, Eugene Peterson in the message, which um, Eugene Peterson passed away this last week. I was like deeply saddening. Uh, just an incredible man of faith. Left an unbelievable legacy. Of faith, and, and one of Eugene Peterson's great contributions to us, to the church, is the message paraphrase. Um, it's not a translation of the Bible. I don't recommend reading it as your, you know, sort of only version of the Bible. It was written by, by one man, but it was his gift to his church, and it's his gift to the church, and it's an incredible paraphrase. And so this is what, how Eugene Peterson translates these few verses in Genesis 1. He says, Now the earth was a soup of nothingness. Love that, right? A soup of nothingness, bottomless emptiness, inky blackness, and God's spirit brooded like a bird over the watery abyss. Chaos, mystery, danger in the sea. This is what Daniel dreams, right? He dreams about this water, this this chaos being sort of stirred up by the winds, by the winds. 
And, and so um, the, the Hebrew people in the Old Testament, they would have understood this and they would have they would have seen the sea as a place of evil and they would have seen the sea as being a place that that houses that these these evil creatures live in the sea. That's where they live. And so there are these forces of evil that live in the sea and they gave them names. They personified them. They gave them names like Leviathan. Have you heard that name before? Leviathan. If you've read the Old Testament, read the book of Job, you've bumped into this word Leviathan. It wasn't a real creature. It was, it was a personified force of evil. Or Rahab is another one. But in Psalm 74, here's an example of how Hebrew people understood this. Psalm 74 um, is a psalm of praise to God. And listen to what it's praising God for. It was you, God, who split open the sea by your power. You broke the heads of the monster. How many heads did this monster have? This is freaky, right? It broke the heads of the monster in the waters, and it was you who crushed the heads of Leviathan. Well, that's pretty cool. What is this psalm talking about? Do you remember a story in the Old Testament where God split the sea? Can you remember a story? What story is it? Anybody? Exodus, right? And what happened in Exodus? This is a psalm of praise for Exodus. And so in Exodus, just to recap the story, God's people were enslaved in Egypt, this empire. And who was at the head of the Egyptian empire? Pharaoh, right? And Pharaoh set himself up as a god to be worshipped. And Pharaoh, having godlike power, having taken it on himself, he enslaved these masses of people. He enslaved them and, and uh, mistreated them and oppressed them. And for 430 years, God's people were in Egypt. But they cried out to God and God heard their cry. And God tried to get Pharaoh to let them go. But Pharaoh hardened his heart, right? Pharaoh, Pharaoh with his godlike power, said no. His arrogance, he wouldn't let the people go. And, um, and they said, let them go. I will not let them go. They didn't say that. That was something else. Um, and then... So finally, God brings judgment on Pharaoh, right? Brings judgment on Egypt. Horrible judgment. And finally, sort of, he breaks their spirit, and, and the people come free, and they go free, and they're, they're moving into the wilderness, and where do they land? In front of the sea, the Red Sea. And so God's people are now trapped between Pharaoh and his army that is pursuing them in the sea, this place of mystery and chaos and disorder and evil. Do you feel that tension? What does God do? God splits the sea. He splits the sea. He speaks a word and he splits the sea. And God's people move through in safety right through the heart of the sea to dry ground on the other side. And what happens to Pharaoh and his army? Ding, ding, ding. This is going to be really important in about 10 seconds. What happens to Pharaoh and his army? They rush into the sea in their arrogance, pursuing God's people. And the sea closes up around them and swallows them breaks the heads of the sea monster. If this is what Psalm 74 is talking about, what Psalm 74 was talking about, <laughs> go, there you go. You can bring that back up, Carl. Who's Leviathan? Who's Leviathan in that passage? Who are the sea monsters? The Egyptians, right? Leviathan is, is Pharaoh, is this... This evil oppressor who sets himself up as God. So these beasts that live in the sea, they're actually pictures of nations, of empires that do horrible things to people in the world. 
violent, people bent on conquest. Does that make sense? Are you with me? So Daniel has this crazy vision of the sea, right? Has this crazy vision of the sea being churned up, and it's terrifying, and he's laying in his bed at night, and he has this vision. And out of the abyss, out of the abyss come these four sort of mutant beasts, right? There's a lion with wings. Um, there's a there's a bear that has like ribs in its teeth, and it's like kind of like a half grizzly bear or whatever. This and, and it's told to like trample and eat its fill of flesh. And then there's this leopard that has again four wings on the leopard, so it's like a deaf leopard. Um, wow. And so. Um, just this crazy, crazy destructive pictures. Uh, and then there's this fourth super beast, right? And this super beast is like, it's not pictured as like any other animal, not like a lion or a, a, a bear or a tiger. Oh my. It's like this, it's this, um, this crazy beast that has iron teeth and it tramples everything and devours everything and destroys everything in its past. These pictures that Daniel is having is a picture of a world that is being destroyed by powerful people and powerful nations with powerful armies that are oppressing other people. Does that make sense? Now think about Daniel for a second. Daniel watched his homeland be destroyed by a powerful beast, the beast of Babylon. They came and they they took God's people. They destroyed the, the walls around Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple. They, Daniel probably watched his family be either murdered or in, carried off into slavery. His friends, his relatives. And then Daniel himself was, was taken 900 miles away to a foreign land in Babylon. And he was a slave. And he was forced to serve a tyrant king. And he's there in Babylon with his friends. And Daniel had experienced incredible trauma. I mean, you imagine, this is not just a story, this is a man's life. Imagine the trauma that you would have experienced going through all this, seeing what he has seen. And he watched his three friends refuse to bow to a tyrant king and get thrown into the furnace. And God saved him. And he himself refused to pray to a tyrant king and was thrown into where? The lion's den. He was thrown in with the beasts that were meant to kill him. And God protected him and and saved him and delivered him. And so here is Daniel living in this nation that it has these beast-like qualities, these oppressive qualities. And Daniel, you can can hear him like laying in his bed at night. And and the question is in his mind, God, how long will the world be like this? How long will the world be ravaged with evil? Like, how long will oppressive people just have run of the show and just run the world? Like, God, when will you come and bring, bring justice? Like, when will you right all the wrongs? When will you bring your peace, God, into this place? Can you feel that question that Daniel has? Did you ever ask that question yourself in your own life of just like, God, when, when are you going to make this right? Because this is not right. It's not okay. You, you, you read the news, right? And, and there's an, another shooting in, a, in a, a synagogue this last week. And you think, God, how long will we be so bent on violence that we will just destroy each other? Like how, how long are you going to let this happen, God? You feel that question? How long, God, will you allow a world to, to just sort of go on, to exist where there are 65 million refugees right now around the world? 
that have been displaced because powerful people have oppressed others and have forced them to flee from their homeland. This is, does this story seem relevant to anybody? This is our story. This is, this is the world that we find ourselves in. And this is what Daniel feels. How long will these powerful, powerful beasts have run of the show? Now, Daniel, as he's having, just in this place of despair, in this place of fear, in this place of terror, all of a sudden, in verse 9, things shift. And it goes, if this was a movie, it would go from like ominous, you know, sort of um, tones that kind of made the, the hair on the back of your neck stand up. And all of a sudden, in verse 9, the, the scene would shift, and Daniel kind of gets this glimpse, not from the, the sea, but now he gets a glimpse into heaven, right? The place that sort of is, is the way God wants it to be, the place where God is. And the tone changes, and it's this peaceful, beautiful tone. And, and here's what he says, And I saw these thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. God is pictured here as the Eternal One. The one who was and is and is to come. The, the one with no beginning and no end. This ancient of days took his seat and his clothing was white as snow and the hair on his head was white like wool. It was this picture of just brilliant purity and holiness and beauty. And his throne was flaming with fire. How cool is that? Like his throne was was flaming with fire and its wheels, his throne has wheels, it's like a hot rod throne, and it's all ablaze. I mean, this is, and this fire is a symbol in the Old Testament of judgment. Fire is used to refine metals, right? It's used to take the impurities out of metals so that, that all of the ugly stuff is burned out of it and what's left is, is pure and good and, and, and valuable. And so this fire is a picture of judgment. So, so all of a sudden, in the middle of all this chaos, Daniel has a vision of heaven. And he gets this glimpse into the throne room of heaven, and he sees this one who is good and is true and is beautiful and is powerful. And even just the glimpse of him causes people to worship. And, it, and the verse goes on and it says, And I saw... 10,000 times 10,000 gathered around this one's throne, worshiping him. Think about the stories of Daniel, right? The stories we've covered. All of these tyrant kings, they set up their thrones and they command people to do what? Worship me. And there is this one at the center of the universe, this, this king of heaven, who doesn't need to command people to worship him because even just the sight of him causes us to worship, inspires us to worship. Millions of people gathered around his throne to worship. This is a symbol of incredible hope in the middle of the chaos. This is a, a symbol like the great words of this, the old hymn, right? The, the hymn, This is My Father's World. Do you know that song? One of my favorite lines in that song is, though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. Like, though the world looks like it's about to be pulled back into chaos, though it looks like it's about to just get sort of swamped in the sea, God is the ruler yet, and God is on the throne. And then Daniel gets his vision. He says, in my vision that night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. One like a son of man. And it literally just means like a son of Adam. He looked like a human being. He was like, like us. Uh, 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 one like a man, and he was coming on the clouds of heaven. Remember that. The Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. 
We'll, we'll call that back in a few minutes. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into His presence. And He, the Son of Man, was given authority and glory and sovereign power. And all nations and peoples of every language worshipped Him, the Son of Man. And His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and it will not pass away. And His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So he has this glimpse of the ancient one, the, the king of heaven and earth, and into his presence comes this human being, this, this one who is just like us, a son of man, and he is given authority. He is given the power to rule all nations and all people. Now, if you know the Bible, your Jesus radar should be pegged right now. You have Jesus radar, like, right? The, you know the, maybe the stories, and you know that the most prominent name Jesus used to describe himself was what? The Son of Man. Other people called him teacher. Other people, like rabbi. Other people called him the Messiah. Or or the Christ is how we've come to know him, which is is another name for the Messiah, the Savior. But Jesus, when he talked about himself, more often than not, he talked about the Son of Man. Where did he get that? Daniel 7. So here, here's a couple of examples. In Mark chapter 2, you can just read on the screen here. Um, this is Jesus speaking as he, as he heals this man. He says, um, hey, by the way, your sins are forgiven. Don't just be healed. You're forgiven. And people like, are in an uproar. Like, who, who says you have the authority to forgive sins? And this is what Jesus says. Hey, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus is talking about himself. And what title does he claim? Daniel, Son of Man. Um, in verse, uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 33. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and they will condemn him to death. These beasts will trample him and devour him, just like they did every other son of man. These chief priests and the teachers of the law, they will condemn him and they will put him to death and they will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and three days later he will rise. So when Jesus says, when he calls himself the Son of Man, he's saying three things. One, I have the authority of God. He's claiming to be God, to have that authority. He's saying that people will not accept that authority that he has, and so they will kill him and condemn him, but he will be vindicated by God through his resurrection from the dead, and he will be seated at the right hand of the Father, reigning in heaven over all nations. When Jesus says the Son of Man, this is what he means. Are you with me? So this is all about to sort of come together, I hope. I hope in some, some ways that are really helpful. So when Jesus, this last scene in Mark's gospel, we've been looking at Mark, Mark 14. Jesus is, he's been betrayed by Judas. He is, um, it's the middle of the night and he's put on this, this trial and it's kind of a sham of a trial. But the most powerful man in all Israel is leading it. And his name is Caiaphas, and he's the high priest. So Caiaphas is the, is the head of state. He's the head of, of Israel. And he brings Jesus into this, this court. And the high priest asks him, questioning him. And he says, you've been going around claiming to be God. So tell me, right? Tell me, are you the Messiah? Are you the son of the blessed one? And here's what Jesus says. Jesus responds, I am And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. 
This is what Jesus says in this moment. He, who is Jesus claiming to be? Everybody knows, right? He's claiming to be the Son of Man from Daniel chapter 7. And if he is claiming to have the authority of God to be this divine figure that is going to be given authority to rule the world, who is Jesus saying Caiaphas is? He's the beast, right? He, he's the arrogant one who's, who, who has these like boastful qualities, who's claiming to be God. And, and, and Jesus is saying, you are acting as the beast. Like you are trampling God's people. You are, you are conspiring with the enemy. He says earlier, like you are children of your father, the devil. Like he's saying, you have been co-opted by the powers of evil and you're hurting God's people. So Jesus is claiming to be the Son of Man. He's saying, Caiaphas, you are the beast. And what does Caiaphas do? He gets it, right? He knows the Bible better than anybody. He rips his clothes. He, like, tears his cloak. And he screams blasphemy. And he has him, like, hauled off and, and condemned and eventually crucified. So here's, here's the thing um, that is so powerful about this. That, that Jesus, as the Son of Man did not come into this world as a conquering king. He did not come into this world as one who was yielding a sword and taking people's blood. He came identifying with all who had been oppressed before, with all who had been trampled on. He was not a conquistador. He was one who had been conquered. He identified with all who had been marginalized, all who had been enslaved, And he was killed by the beasts of his day, the beasts of Caiaphas and the beasts of Rome. But Jesus, he looks at Caiaphas and essentially says, the moment you condemn me, the moment you condemn me, you are condemning the powers of evil themselves. Because the moment you condemn me, all the powers of evil will be exhausted in me and they will have no more power in this world. See, Jesus... What Jesus is saying, I think, about the identity of these beasts is an incredible warning. Because any nation can take on these beastly qualities. See, nations have always identified with big, like, scary animals. Like, these, these nations identified as beasts. Uh, Carl, if you go back a couple of slides, uh, the ones I skipped. Um, see, Babylon... This was an image of Babylon. This is called the, the Lion of Babylon. It was uh, excavated in uh, like the late 1800s. And so you can still see this in Babylon, Iraq. It's an ancient city that's in ruins. But here's, here's the symbol of Babylon. And what do you notice? Big, nasty lion. And what's under the lion? A person. So what's the image? You walk into Babylon and you say, hey, this looks like a friendly place. Just don't step out of line or we will crush you and devour you. Right. Uh, if you walk through the eighth gate, the gate of Ishtar, um, this was um, this was on the wall, and so you can see this in a museum um, now. I believe in Berlin, maybe. And, and so this big scary lion. So these were the symbols of Babylon. So empires, powerful nations, have always chosen like symbols, right? Big scary symbols. Um, here's another one. Uh, this is Rome. Uh, on top of the Roman standard, over here you have the emperor. And he's receiving this Roman standard. It was a standard that they would march out. Their legions would march into battle and they would hold the standard. And can you see, can you tell what's on top of the standard? It's an eagle. 
like, right? This, this picture of, a, of an eagle, of like this bird of prey, this carnivorous bird of prey. It was a symbol of the Roman legion, this most powerful fighting force the world had ever seen. It was a symbol of an eagle. Eagles are really popular for powerful nations, right? Here's another one. Uh, this is, the, this is the, um, the, the flag of Russia, right? This double-headed eagle, right? It, it's meant to be sort of fierce and powerful. Um, we have an eagle as our symbol as a nation, do we not? It's a symbol of fierceness, a symbol of power, a symbol is this bird of prey. Nations always, powerful nations always choose symbols like this. I've never seen a nation that has chosen like a symbol of a bunny rabbit or one of these things. We don't do that, right? We don't, we, this is not, fear us. We are powerful. Oh, look, a, look, a cute little lamb. This is our national symbol, right? Nations don't do this. Why? Because nations are fierce. Nations are powerful. Nations are built on conquering other people. And Daniel 7, and the message of Jesus, when Jesus stands before Caiaphas, is this. Be very, very skeptical. Be very skeptical of any nation that has so much power that that it says sort of, me first, and everybody else last. Be, be, very, be very skeptical because this power has been at work in the world since the beginning of time. The power, powerful nations that, that, that can oppress other people, that, that can actually push other people from their land in order to have a manifest destiny to say, it's our land, we're going to take it, that can conquer at the edge of the sword. Any nation can have this beast-like quality to it. And Jesus says we, we have to be aware of this. We have to understand it. That as people of faith, we are not to buy into this. Um, and, and, and we realize that like, this does hit really close to home for us. Because we live in the most powerful nation the world has ever seen. By far. By far. We have the most powerful, we have the most um, advanced military the world has ever seen. We have a budget, a military budget that is... Um, is more than, I, I believe, is like the next 10 countries combined. And so this message for us is people of faith who live in the most powerful nation the world has ever seen. Um, we have to ask the question, like, why, what is it about living in this powerful nation that brings us comfort and security and peace? Because it does. Um, we, like, the world can be a really vulnerable place, right? I mean, people die from famines all the time. Uh, people die from invading armies that come across borders and, and, and kill people. Uh, there are storms, natural disasters that come, and people don't have the resources to withstand them. And so what we think is if we can just build a nation big enough and strong enough to have an endless supply of food and to have borders that no one can cross and, and to have a, 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 a military that's powerful enough to protect us, and if we can have enough resources to protect ourselves from all natural disasters, then we will be safe. And, and I get this. I feel this way. Like, I have kids, and I want them to be protected. I, I want them to be safe. And so it's really tempting to put our trust in this whole national system. But the problem is, but the problem is that sometimes the very things we do to feel safe make others feel unsafe. Sometimes the very things that we do to protect our own children are the very things that put other people's children at risk that put God's children, that God loves and God cares about, at risk. And so for people who follow Jesus, Jesus is not seen as an eagle. He is not seen as a, as a conquering lion. What is Jesus seen as? He's the Lamb of God 
who has triumphed. He did not conquer by shedding others' blood. He conquered by allowing his own blood to be shed. This is our symbol as followers of Jesus, that we live in this world. We live in a place that runs like Babylon. This is how the world has always run. There will always be kingdoms that rise. There will always be kingdoms that speak arrogantly. There will always be leaders who are, who are this, these beast-like qualities. But we, as people of faith, as people who have put our trust in Jesus, we believe that the meek will inherit the earth. We believe that Jesus will give the kingdom as an inheritance to those who follow him. So Jesus, in these moments um, when our world is, feels a lot like it did in Daniel's day, it's uncertain, it's unstable, it's scary, there's violence. Um, and, and God, even though we live in this relative security of the most powerful nation in the world, God, we know that your heart is for the oppressed. God, that those who are homeless today, who are refugees, who are displaced, those families that don't have enough food, those who have been ravaged by war and bombs, God, that you love them just like you love us. And so, God, we put ourselves in their place today. And God, we ask that you would come quickly and meet us. We ask that you would give us a vision in this moment. You would give them a vision in this moment into the throne room of heaven, Lord, where you, the Son of Man, sits at the right hand of the Ancient of Days. And Jesus, we worship you because you are the King. Jesus, give us the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. God, that we would learn what it means to follow you in this world, to be ambassadors of a new kingdom, a different kingdom, a kingdom that looks like Jesus and is built on self-sacrificial love. Jesus, we ask that you would empower us and you would send us out into the world to be ambassadors of that kingdom. It is the hope of the world. Jesus, you are the hope of the world. God, inspire us to worship you today, Lord, in Jesus' name.